I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. On today's special episode of Just Healthcare Daily, Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich, co-founders of Just Healthcare, talk about the brave new world of healthcare that's emerging as the country recovers from the coronavirus pandemic. It's Monday, August 24th, and I'm Alex Olgan with Just Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines in health business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. COVID-19 has shaken the American healthcare system. Hospitals were in the emergency planning mode for months just to handle the surges in patients, secure personal protective gear, and adapt its workforce. But now that we're six or seven months into the pandemic and just a few months away from the November elections, health systems are starting to think about the future. And just healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich have been thinking a lot about the brave new world of healthcare and join me today to discuss it. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to uh, get to talk about the future. First, Chaz, the future is so uncertain day to day. How can health systems even plan for next month, let alone next year? Well, you're right. There's a lot of uncertainty in the market. And uh, I think one of the things that we've tried to help our members do is understand that there are different kinds of uncertainty over different time periods. So the real challenge about, you know, in thinking about what impact all of this is going to have on health systems is that there are just so many factors at play at so many different levels, and a lot of them are interrelated. Do consumers come back? What does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for our revenue, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so what we've tried to do is break it down over three time horizons. We think about uh, three futures, the near future, which is more or less the rest of this year. Um, and we think the near future is mostly about just recovery and um, and reopening, just getting back on our feet, dealing with ebbs and flows of COVID, that's going to be the main driver uh, over the near future. And, you know, how comfortable are consumers in coming back into healthcare? I think that's the the question that is on everyone's mind right now. And we're learning more about that. And some of that uncertainty will reduce over time as we figure out how to live with this disease, as we get closer to effective therapeutics or vaccines. Um, You know, I think some of the COVID uncertainty will resolve itself in that near future. Then we think about next year as the next future. Uh, And the next future really 
we think is going to be a period of both opportunities for healthcare organizations that have figured out how to get back on their feet and get back into business and challenges for those that haven't. And I think that creates a condition in the industry next year where there's almost a healthcare land grab, um, where there a lot of the you know, basic building blocks of how healthcare works in this country are gonna be up for grabs. Who's doing virtual care? Is it the payers? Is it the providers? Um, who's owning doctors? Or can doctors remain independent or will doctors get, you know, continue to get rolled up into uh, into other organizations. So there will be some real opportunities in that in that next future. And and the drivers there, I think, are going to have more to do about industry structure and also the economy. Uh, you know, I think the the real question as COVID begins to get under control and we and we get closer to a vaccine is how long will this recession last? What happens to unemployment? Do we remain at historically high levels of unemployment? And if that's the case, that has implications for how employers engage with the system. Uh, how much money people have to spend on healthcare. There will be a payer mix shift uh, as well as more folks go on to Medicaid and 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 uh, on the exchanges and have less stable uh, insurance through their employers. And then the third future, what we call the far future, is really the new rules of the road. So once we've sort of gone through that resorting period next year, um, we'll emerge and with different players playing different roles in healthcare. So if you think about the big consolidation of telemedicine and the, and the um, emergence of Teladoc as a, as a major platform player here, if you think about the role that um, an Amazon could play or what you know, Humana being the center of home-based care or Optum being the center of, uh, of non-hospital uh, you know, clinical care, um, there could be very different uh, competitive dynamics in that far future. And so we'll just have to think about in the longer term, what is the value proposition that different organizations are bringing to the market for consumers and employers and, and others? And speaking of that land grab, Lisa, we've started to see merger activity pick up a little bit. There was, it seemed like a dead zone in the spring and early summer, but we've heard at least a couple health systems like uh, Greensboro, North Carolina-based Cone Health and Virginia-based Santera uh, Healthcare announce a planned merger, Advocate Aurora um, in Illinois and Wisconsin and Beaumont in Michigan um, have announced that they're in talks. So do we expect merger activity to pick up? You know, we do, but Alex, I'm glad you mentioned the COVID dead zone when we didn't hear a lot of mergers being announced in the spring and early summer. Uh, and it's important to remember that combinations like the ones you mentioned, that anything that we're hearing about now was clearly in the works pre-COVID. And so I wouldn't ascribe any recently announced merger to uh, being because of COVID. It's more like it has survived the test of COVID and partners who were in conversations before have decided that they still want to move forward despite the changes in the market. But as Chaz said, as we start to move into next year, there's no doubt that we will see more consolidation as, you know, health systems and other healthcare companies that are in a position of strength look to pursue new opportunities that the market is creating. Um, some of those will be opportunistic. Uh, there will be uh, hospitals and others who are weakened by COVID in a bad financial position and need to look for a port in the storm. Uh, but the much more interesting ones to watch for will be the ones that are strategic in nature. 
where an insurer or a health system or a tech company is looking to build a platform that allows them to deliver something you know new in kind to the market, uh, like you know owning the telemedicine space. Uh, putting together a new and kind value-based or consumer-focused platform, uh, that's what I would be looking for in the middle of what's likely to be a lot of merger buzz. Do you think disruptors are going to be an even more looming presence over health systems like Walmart or Amazon or the Teladoc Lavongo merger? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, with the first two that you mentioned, Walmart and Amazon, you know, those might be the two companies that have seen their fortunes rise the most uh, during the pandemic, given that Walmart really never lost uh, shoppers foot traffic and we're all buying way more junk on Amazon. Uh, so they're coming to the market in a position of strength and able to make big healthcare moves uh, if they so choose. Insurers are in the same position. They have been able to bank a lot of cash uh, as consumers uh, dropped uh, the rates at which they were seeking care. And, you know, so I would say that from that perspective, uh, they're likely to be more aggressive in encroaching into the provider space uh, than they were pre-COVID. It's a good example of um, how all of these uncertainties play against each other. So, Walmart's doing great right now because foot traffic didn't go down. That's largely because of the policy environment and the fact that Congress funded a bunch of relief money, you know, more unemployment insurance and so forth. Um, if that dries up or if there's not another big stimulus bill, that could drive uh, retail sales down, which in turn could put economic pressure on some of these disruptors. And so you begin to see how all of this stuff has a has a, an interplay effect that makes it sort of complicated. And so we'll just have to get through some of this market uncertainty to really understand what the longer term future uh, looks like. Yeah, and Chaz, the relief money is uh, important to consider and I'm glad you mentioned it because one sector of the healthcare marketplace uh, that seems to have benefited positively from the relief money, the small business PPP loans, uh, you know, are independent physician practices. Going into the pandemic, you know, there was a huge amount of concern amongst smaller practices that they were going to be in a very financially precarious position and we were likely to see a lot of independent doctors go under or look to be bought by hospitals or insurance companies. And the amount of that activity across the summer has been much slower than we would have expected. And we're hearing from doctors that uh, the bolus of money that they got through those loans really has helped to sustain their practice. But there is a lot of worry looking forward into the fall and next year, you know, if there isn't another wave of relief coming, whether that pace will pick up. Yeah, we know we had thought previously that, like you said, consolidation among independent practices, you know, it could be the death of the independent practice. It sounds like we're just sort of watching to see what happens with federal funds. Are there other factors at play, do you think, that could affect that? I mean, there is a long-term, you know, number of factors that are making it harder and harder for independent practices to survive. And on the flip side, making the idea of a larger integrated practice uh, more interesting to physicians, you know, ranging from demographics, you know, younger physicians want a different work-life balance or seeking a different kind of practice style, all the way to the complexity of practice from electronic medical records to, you know, 
raising the bar on things like quality reporting, all of those have nothing to do to COVID, have been around for years and years. And that pressure was going to intensify regardless. Uh, COVID just probably quickened the pace. I think that's true with a lot of strategies. We work with health system members. I think one of the things that is becoming increasingly apparent is that it, it's not so much that uh, we have a radically different future ahead of us or we're on a radically different path. Things are going to get here radically faster than we thought they were going to. That's clearly happened with telemedicine in most places. Um, but the same thing will be true with the structure of physician practice. The same thing will be true with the integration uh, of payer and provider organizations. A lot of the longer term trends that were on sort of a slow burn before COVID have just gotten dramatically accelerated because of the economic pressure, because of the uh, situation in the market. Uh, and I think we'll expect that to continue. And moving to virtual care, I know health systems and other providers adopted virtual care strategies much faster, almost overnight, um, that were had been sort of years in the future. Um, but we've seen virtual care start to plateau a little bit. It looks like from recent surveys, it's about 8% higher than pre-pandemic levels. Do you think that's a ceiling for maybe how much care patients want virtually or providers want that way? Or you think the models are still adapting? Uh, the models are definitely still adapting. When you talk to providers about where their level of virtual visits was in the throes of lockdown, in April and May and where it is now and where they hope it will likely end up, they want it to settle somewhere in the middle. And surveys of consumers show that their experiences with telemedicine have been positive and they want more of it. The challenge for doctors and health systems is going to be creating a model that is first and foremost sustainable for their clinicians. Uh, what a lot of docs have found really hard is mixing the return to office and keeping up the pace of, of telemedicine. Probably much more of the digital work needs to be centralized and creating something that delivers a long-term consumer experience that makes patients want to keep coming back. Uh, patients were willing to give us uh, a, a lot of credit for getting telemedicine up and running quickly early in the pandemic. Uh, you know, six months from now, they're going to expect an experience that is on par with everything else uh, in their digital consumption world. And at the same time, they're going to have insurers and tech companies coming to provide competing solutions uh, that will surely have a high level of uh, consumer experience. And it's a nuanced story, right? I mean, it's uh, so telemedicine isn't just one thing. Often we think about it as like a separate line of business, virtual care. But in fact, it's part of a lot of different kinds of uh, of healthcare delivery, or should be part of a lot of different kinds of care episodes. So while it, you're right, it has tailed down in some parts of the business. For example, in behavioral health and in, in mental health care, it has stayed high. And I think one of the things we learned very quickly in COVID is that. Uh, virtual behavioral health care is actually a really good solution for a lot of uh, the use cases that we have in that part of healthcare. And, and, you know, as I said before, we've now just accelerated our transition into that model. I don't think that's going back down. I think, you know, we've seen the promised land and it's a, it's just a better way of delivering care. Yeah, Shaz, you hit the nail on the head and what systems have to do is figure out where telemedicine works really, really well 
and where we need to be bringing in-person care to patients, whether it's taking them to the office or bringing the care into their home. Um, it's about redesigning care pathways. You know, the exciting thing is that systems actually have a model for doing this quickly. If you look at how uh, hospitals and doctors redesigned care for COVID, they did that fast and on the fly and created something completely different where I get triaged with an online symptom checker. I do a virtual visit. I get tested, not in my doctor's office, but in a drive-through uh, uh, testing site. If I'm admitted to the hospital, I might be discharged home with online monitoring and a pulse oximeter. You know, that was creating a completely new blended care pathway. We now need to take a lot of traditional medicine and do the same thing to it. Speaking of people coming back into hospitals and doctor's offices, I know that a lot of volume has returned, but uh, we don't think it's going to return 100%. Where do we think it's going to level out, Chaz? And how do you think um, health systems are going to adapt financially? Because we know the payer mix is not going to be the same with millions losing employer-sponsored coverage, either going on the marketplaces or um, adjoining Medicaid programs. Yeah, this is sort of the three and a half trillion dollar question. Um, how much of the business is coming back and how much of this change is actually permanent and not just um, not just temporary. Um, I think the consensus that we're getting from uh, from folks across the country as we uh, talk to members and others is that folks are expecting probably about 85 to 90 percent of the volume to come back uh, in traditional channels and traditional ways. Um, and then that there's just some amount, whether it's, you know, 10 to 15% of the business that won't come back either because people have just decided they're going to live with conditions that they might otherwise have, have uh, sought care for, or they can't afford it anymore. They don't have the same insurance coverage, uh, those sorts of things. And so, um, we, we, you know, we'll probably end up at some amount that's less than hundred percent of where we were back uh, in 2019. That's bad news because uh, most healthcare providers have built an economic model based on, you know, it's a fixed cost business. So they've built an economic model based on 100% of the volume. Uh, and so when you lose even 10% of the volume, that's a big deal from a, from, a, um, from a volume perspective using that fixed capacity. And then to make matters even worse, because there's the payer mix shift going on, we might be at 85% of the volume, but only 70 to 75% of the revenue. Uh, for, for a lot of health systems and physicians. And so we're sort of in the same place that everybody else in the economy is, right? So think about the airlines who can only fill, you know, 70, 75% of their seats, or think about the restaurants that can only open up to 50% capacity or the retailers that have seen a, a big drop in foot traffic. The economy wasn't built to run on 85%. It was built to run on 100%. And so what that means for providers, for health systems, for our members, uh, is they've really got to get focused and urgent about um, rethinking operations, about cost cutting, about changing the cost structure, probably changing the asset mix. So we've got, a, as people have been saying for a decade or more now, we're way over invested in bricks and mortar and way under invested in uh, clicks and virtual care. And so there's got to be a reallocation uh, of uh, of capital in healthcare, that's not going to happen overnight. I mean, that's why we think this is really about new rules of the road that are going to take effect over the next five years or more, because there's a big new reality that we face about just how much uh, of the old activity we're going to continue to do in this new future. I 
have to ask about the big wild card in all of this, which is the political situation, the upcoming election, of course. Democratic nominee Joe Biden has talked about some big policy shifts like a public option and opening Medicare to younger seniors. President Trump hasn't laid out much of a comprehensive health care plan at all. But all of that to say, given that we're likely to be fighting this pandemic for a while, do you think any large scale policy change is a long ways off? I mean, you're right. It is the big wild card. Um, it's going to have, you know, there will be some short term implications of it. There, you know, there's regulations that could go one way or another. I think the, the main short term implication of the election, if the Dems take the Senate and Biden wins, is we'll probably have a different approach to dealing with coronavirus. We'll probably have more of a, a concerted strategy around testing and PPE and things like that. Again, we don't know what's going to happen with the vaccine and where we'll be uh, with that if there were a Biden administration in January. Um, the bigger things that people talk about, you know, Medicare at 60 or public option or any of those big policy proposals, those aren't going to be in our near future and probably not even in our next future. That's more for the far future, as I described it. So it'll take you know, a good 18 months to two years to actually have all of the negotiations around how would you do Medicare at 60, for example. Um, so that's a lot of steps down the road. Um, but, but for now, I think this is, you know, as always in healthcare, and I think this has been the story for the last 15 years, is the political environment just continues to create unhelpful uncertainty in healthcare. Uh, and we never seem to be able to get out from under it. Part of that's just because healthcare is a political thing. And I think that's the world we live in. We'll talk more about those policy changes and the future next time we're together. This is just the first in a series of conversations about the brave new world of healthcare that we'll be having with GIST co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich. Look for the next episode in September. Thanks to both of you for joining me. Thanks, Alex. It was fun. We should do it again soon. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening to Just Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olgan. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on JustHealthcare.com. Just Healthcare Daily is an independent production of Just Healthcare. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.